Well, there was an Aggie who held the record for the most years as a student at Texas A&M. And the day of his graduation finally came, and as he approached the platform, the graduating students rose and cheered as they were witnessing this historic event. And at that very moment, the registrar ran up on the stage and he said, stop, stop, we can't let him graduate. We just found out he's missing a math class. Now, all the other students shouted out, let him graduate. And the uh, registrar and the dean of the mathematics department and the president of the university quickly huddled up on the platform and they had a discussion. And they said, okay, okay, we're gonna give him a math test. It's pass fail, one question, and if he passes it, we'll give him credit for the class and he can graduate. And so this senior student is standing there and the dean says to him, what is two plus two? Now the Aggie thinks, he calculates, he counts. He thinks for a moment and he says, is it four? And all the other students cried out, give him another chance. <laughs> yeah. I think I need another chance with the Aggies that are here. Well, as we turn in our Bible today, the second part of Luke chapter 14, what we're going to find is there's a, similar, a situation that is kind of similar to the story I just told, except that instead of having the right answer and being thought wrong, we're going to see where there's one of the religious leaders who gives a wrong answer, but is thought to be right by all the other ones who were present. Now, as we look at Luke chapter 14, if you were here last week, you'll recall that when we left off last time, Jesus was at a meal in the house of one of the leading Pharisees. He had been invited there to trap him. And we saw how instead of falling into the trap that they had set, Jesus actually turns the tables. And it ends up being the religious leaders who are corrected for their hypocrisy, for their pride. And Jesus tells them instead of doing things to get something in return, they should be looking for others that they can serve. And as this is taking place, uh, we, we find here in Luke 14, 15, where it says, and one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this. And he said to him, blessed is everyone who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, it, it appears this guy's been drinking his dinner. He just blurts this out. But it's not that he's drunk. It's that this guy is sitting there and he's saying, you know, things are getting really uncomfortable. Jesus' teaching is hitting close to home with all of those who are there. And so to change the subject from their sins, he says, hey, look, we're all on the good side of God. And you can picture him as he says, blessed are those who will be in the kingdom of God. He's sweeping his arm around the room to say, everybody here who's reclining around the table, all these other religious leaders, hey, we're all going to be in heaven. We're all going to be at the banquet. And what God does here, what Jesus does in verses 16 and following, is he tells another parable to correct their misconception. <clears throat> it says, but Jesus said to them, a certain man was, was giving a big dinner, and he invited many, and at the dinner hour he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. 
And another one said, I have married a wife, and for this reason I cannot come. And the slave came back, and he reported uh, these things to his master. And then the head of the household became angry. And he said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and crippled and the blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges, and compel them to come in. Come in that my house may be filled, for I tell you that none of these men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Now, when we're told here that there is a certain man, this host of this great banquet, this represents God. And the banquet, the meal that we're reading about, as you read through the scriptures, you find that many times heaven is pictured as this feast or as a marriage uh, banquet that is taking place. And so we have God that is saying the time of the kingdom has come and he's inviting people to come and be a part of the celebration. Now the guests that were originally invited are the Jews. And the servants that are sent out to them would be those like the prophets, those who foretold of the coming of the Messiah, those who through the law and the writings and through what they spoke said, the the Messiah will be coming. And as Jesus is there, he says, I am he, I am the Messiah, I've come. You'll recall as you read through the scriptures, you see this. Uh, Earlier here in Luke chapter 4 and verse 21, we see a time where Jesus was teaching in a synagogue. He was given the honor of reading the the scripture. And as he reads a passage that related to the coming of the Messiah, it says in Luke 4.21, Jesus said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And you recall that the response of the Jews there was to say, this is blasphemy. And they pushed him out of the synagogue and they went and they tried to throw him over a cliff to kill him. But he being God just simply walked through their midst and disappeared unhurt. Later in Luke chapter 19, after this parable, there will be a time where Jesus enters Jerusalem at his triumphal entry. The people will be crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were, they were saying the fulfillment has come, the Messiah is here. And again, we see the religious leader's response is to say this is blasphemy. They told Jesus, tell the people to be quiet. And Jesus said, if they go silent, even the stones will cry out. They rejected him yet again. Now, sadly, later, the crowds joined in as well. In Luke 23, 18, we're told where the people that were gathered there, based upon the prompting of the leaders, cried out, crucify him, kill him. But here, as Jesus is telling the story, as he says, the Messiah is here in your presence, in your presence, and rather than celebrating, you're rejecting me. It says in verse 18, they all alike began to make excuses. The first one says, I bought a piece of land and I need to go and look at it. Now, I want you to notice the verb tense is past tense. This isn't a sense of urgency where the thing has just come on the market and the first one that gets there is going to get it. The guy already owns the land. And we're told that the invitation is to the dinner and the dinner would have been in the evening. So there would have been very little. Even if this guy went out and wanted to walk around and look at the land, it's dark. He's not going to be able to see it. And so this person, the the excuse that is offered here falls into the category of those who are caught up in what they own. You see, here's a guy who was more concerned about his own little kingdom than the kingdom of God. 
Here is a guy who was possessed by his possessions. And what God wants us to know is rather than being owned by the things of the world, we need to understand the redemption that God gives to us. When we're told this man has bought the land, the Greek word that is used for the purchase here uh, comes from agorazo. This is a, a rich word that means to redeem and buy something. We find it mentioned in regards to us and our salvation numerous times in the scripture. Some examples are Revelation 5, 9. There it says, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain, speaking of Jesus. And they say, You purchased, and thou didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and nation. It's found again in 1 Corinthians 6.20 where we're told, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 7.23 tells us you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men and do not become slaves of your possessions. You see, God offers us redemption through his Son the Savior, Jesus Christ, who came to purchase us. And he doesn't want us to be worried about our little kingdoms here on earth. Instead, we need to be focused on the kingdom of God in heaven. Now, as God offers us this redemption, there are some, unfortunately, like this man who pass over the invitation. Rather than entering the kingdom of God, they focus on the things of the world. Now, verse 19 tells us of the second one. It says, and another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. When it says to try them out, this word means to test or examine. A yoke of oxen, you'll recall, would be a pair. So there's 10 uh, animals that have been purchased here, a very significant uh, purchase. This would be like buying a whole fleet of tractors. And how many people have ever bought a car without test driving it or having a mechanic or somebody you trust look it over? Do you go potluck? That's kind of ludicrous to think you'd do that, wouldn't it? Much less to buy an entire fleet of trucks here, so to speak. And so what we find here is this, this is designed to really show us how lame our excuses are sometimes. It's, it's how we let things like work, or maybe it's a, a new toy that we've gotten that we want to we try out. And we let these things get in the way of the time that God deserves. We let these things, again, our possessions possess us, rather than focusing on God. As you think about your own life, what, what has priority in your life? What is it that you're preoccupied with? As you look at where God is in the order of things in your life, does he get the first fruits or does he get what's left? Are your personal possessions, your business dealings, getting in the way of God? Now, maybe it's what we see in verse 20. It says, and another one said, I have married a wife, and for this reason, I cannot come. <clears throat> now, the first two excuses have to do with our material possessions. This one has to do with our affections. And as you're looking at it, you may be thinking, well, you know, this one kind of has some credence, doesn't it? I mean, after all, God's word even tells us in Deuteronomy 24, 5, it says, when a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army, nor shall he be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home one year and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. Now, making our family a priority is something God wants. He wants our family to be a priority. 
You know, one of the things that I struggle with as a pastor is, is putting uh, all the needs of the many families that make up Wayside Chapel in not getting, letting those things get ahead of putting my family first. It's easy to minister to other families and neglect your own. And for some of you, you struggle with these things as well. And it may not necessarily be ministry that's getting in the way. It's other things that fill your calendar. Those of you who have kids that are involved in activities or sports, you know how your calendar can quickly clog up with all those events. We've got three kids, and there are times that my wife is at one event with one kid. I'm at another event with another one, and we have the third one that is either being dragged along to some of these, or sometimes the third one has an event, and there's only two of us. And we've gone from man-to-man to zone defense, and we're kind of running around going, how do we cover all the bases, right? And for some of you, you know what this is like. Your calendar begins to fill up with all these other priorities. You know, even if it's not kids you're juggling, there are all kinds of things that compete for our calendar. Things like our jobs. It could be time given to serve on a committee or a board. It could be social commitments. It could be just finding time to exercise for yourself or just having a little downtime. And as things pile up, How many times do we find the only place on our calendar that maybe we can carve out is Sunday? So many families say, you know, Roger, we're running 90 to nothing all through the week and all the activities, and the only time we have where everybody is clear is on a Sunday. And so is it wrong to skip church to focus on our family time? Friends, why is it that church always becomes the first thing that we're willing to cut? Why not look at some of those other activities and say, you know, we're going to skip that meet, or we're not going to add one more activity to the schedule. We're going to curtail some of the activities that we do. Now, what I hear more and more are people say, well, you know, Roger, I may not be at church, but I'm, I'm really going to church because it's wonderful. Wayside has put all the sermons online. If you're not aware of it, you can listen to the messages online. They're even on their own video format. So if you're having trouble sleeping uh, at home, you can log in and you can let the droning of my voice put you to sleep. It's more comfortable than the pews that you're sitting in at home, right? And so what people say is, okay, you know, I still go to church. I I watch the sermons online. And and now we live in a day where you have the, the privilege and ability to get some of the best preachers from across the country and the world. And people say, you know, I get multiple messages through the week. And I, and, I, and I subscribe to this blog and that daily devotional, and, and I'm getting fed. I'm getting all kinds of, of sermons all through the week. And while those are certainly great things to have, they should not replace showing up and having face-to-face interaction. You know, we live in a society today that is more connected than ever before and more disconnected at the same time. We have people who live in a virtual world where they have all these friends on Facebook and through Twitter and Instagram and all this, and and they're the loneliest they've ever been because we lack human interaction and face-to-face interaction. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 tells us this. It says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together. That means not giving up gathering together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
There was a man who had been a faithful attender at church for many years, and suddenly he, he stopped coming to church, and the pastor noticed this. And so one day he went to visit the man. Uh, he called first and said, I'd like to come by and see you. And the man said, that'd be great. Why don't you come by in the evening? And so as the pastor went out, it was a cold night. There was snow on the ground, and he comes to the man's house, and as he's walking up, he can see through the picture window this guy is sitting in a, in a big chair by a roaring fire. And so the pastor knocks on the door, and the man gets up. He opens the door, says, Pastor, great, come on in. He takes his coat and hat, hangs it up, and leads him over to another chair by the blazing fire. And the two sit down, and as they're sitting there, the pastor doesn't say a word. He just stares at the fire as the man is. And they're watching the flames kind of dance across the burning logs, and they're enjoying the warmth. And after a little bit of silence, the pastor gets up and he takes a pair of the fire tongs and he reaches in and he grabs a hold of a, a coal that is blazing in the middle of the fire. And he puts this ember over to the side of the hearth all by itself. And then he hangs up the tongs and he sits back in the chair again without saying a word. Now, the host is watching all this with fascination, wondering what is going on. And after a while, the burning ember starts to diminish and finally it just goes out. It's dead as a doornail. Again, without saying a word, the pastor picks up the fire tongs. He grabs this now dead coal and he lays it back in the center of the fire. And within a few moments with the heat and the light of all the other things burning around it, it reignites this and it begins to burn brightly again. The pastor uh, gets up, he walks over, he puts on his hat and coat, again without saying a word, and he prepares to leave. And the man uh, is there at the door with the pastor, and he says, Pastor, thank you so much for your visit, and especially for the fiery sermon. <laughs> he said, I'll be back in church next week. <clears throat> Friends, many of you may say, you know, my fire is burning just fine. But what happens is when we remove ourselves from other believers who are there to encourage and stimulate and, and help us burn brightly, in time we too will diminish and go out. And even if you're saying, you know, Roger, I'm doing just fine all by myself. Have you ever stopped to consider that part of the reason you are here is because of the other people who are around you? Hebrews tells us part of our role in gathering together is to encourage and stimulate others. There are people that are out there in the world that are going through very difficult times. And they come on a Sunday morning just wanting to be in a community where there are people who love them. They want to come to a place where they're not ridiculed for their faith like they're facing at the military bases or in their workplaces or in the halls of the schools where they attend. And they need to come just to see there are others who understand the truth. There are others who are walking the road with me. And we encourage and we strengthen and we support one another. As you look at the vision statement of Wayside Chapel, it begins, Wayside Chapel is a community. And that's a very purposeful word in our statement. Because the Bible tells us that we are to be a community of believers. And as you read through Acts, you see that as the community of believers came together, and as the outside world watched what was happening, they were attracted to it and they wanted to be a part of it. And so we create a community in order to reach the community. It says Wayside Chapel is a community rooted in the word, reaching out to the world, reproducing Christ's followers. 
And when you come on Sunday morning, when you come in midweek activities, when you are involved in ministries throughout the, the week and the ways that you're involved at Wayside, you are fulfilling the vision statement of our church as you help create this community and as you stimulate and stoke the fire in others. Now, I get that some of you need a break. You're saying, you know, Roger, I'm, I'm going through lots of stuff and, and do I really need to be here 52 out of 52 Sundays? Am I going to spontaneously burst in judgment if I don't come to church? No, you're not. And are you going to burn out instantaneously if you don't come to church? No, you're not. But over time, as Hebrews warns us, it becomes a habit where it's easier to set aside God and put the other things as first in our life. And what God says through this parable is he wants us to understand the priority of putting him first. And coming to Christ and making him the priority and not the things in the world. As we talk about our love for God, it's not about attending church so you can check off a box. It's not about rules and ritual. That's what the religious leaders were really good at. What Jesus says is it is about a relationship. It is about knowing me personally and showing your love for me. Yes, you are to love your husband or love your wife but we are to love the Lord first and foremost. And all other relationships are to be secondary to that. The Jewish, religi Jewish religious leaders were great at following their rules and rituals, but sadly they rejected Jesus, which ultimately led to their rejection as well. <clears throat> the story's told of a, a frontier town. This was during the days of the Wild West. And there was a young boy that was in an open wagon sitting in front of a store while his parents were inside. And something happened that startled the horse attached to the wagon. And this wagon took off. And this young boy was in it. And as this horse was galloping out of control and the wagon was going everywhere with nobody controlling this young boy in the back, everybody knew that he was going to meet with certain danger. Well, there was a, a, a younger man who was there riding in on horseback, and he saw what was happening. And risking his own life, he, he set out at full speed after this wagon. And he caught up to the wagon with this little boy in the back bouncing around, and he managed to, to come alongside and to stop the horses and save the young boy's life. Now, many years later, that young boy that was in the wagon grew up to become a lawless man. And one day he was arrested for some horrendous crimes and he was brought before a judge to be sentenced, to be hanged. And as this man was standing there before the judge, he looked up and he recognized the judge as being the man who saved his life many years before. And based upon that situation, he said to the judge, he reminded the judge of it and he pled for mercy. And the judge looked down at this criminal and he said, he said, sir, on that day I was your savior, but today I'm your judge and I sentence you to be hanged. And what the Bible tells us is that Jesus Christ is our savior. And what he wants us to know is during the long day of grace, he offers us that gift of salvation. But there is a day coming where our savior will take the role of the judge. And for those who have rejected his gift of grace, those who have not come to faith in Jesus, there will be a day where he will reject them as well. As you read Revelation at the great white throne judgment, he says those who appear before the throne will be sent to the place that we call hell. 
because their name will not be in the book of life. They will be those who said, God, I didn't want your gift of grace. I didn't accept your death in my place. And what Jesus will say to them is, then you must pay the penalty of death yourself. Depart from me. As we look at God's love for sinners, we see that he has plenty of room in his house. <clears throat> Verses 22 through 23 tell us, And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges, and compel them to come into my house that it may be filled. The servants are told, Go outside of the city, which would mean to go outside of the nation of Israel. You recall that the Messiah came first to the Jews. God had chosen the nation of Israel to be his people, and he sent the Messiah to them. The Jews were given the first opportunity. And there were some who rejected him. And those who are farther removed, we saw that he, he said, go out first of all and, and, and bring in the, the sick and the lame and the others. These are the sinners. There were those in the nation of Israel that were seen as, as wretched. These were bad sinners. And, and the servants, the prophets, and the preachers and others said, we've done that. Some have come, but there's still room. And God says, now go out even farther. Go to the Gentiles. Go beyond the nation of Israel and bring in those who are outside. Romans 1.16 tells us, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek you see, the Jews are still God's chosen people. They have a special place in God's kingdom and in God's plan. And while Israel has rejected Jesus, the scriptures tell us there is a time coming when the nation of Israel will turn to Jesus and will accept him as the Messiah. But because of their initial rejection, because of that, God has allowed us who are Gentiles, non-Jews, to be welcomed into the kingdom. Romans 11 uh, you can turn to Romans chapter 11 and verses 17 through 26 tell us this. It says, some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree. The picture here is the branches broken off for the Jews and we who were Gentiles, these wild olive, uh, these non-native uh, parts of the tree were grafted in. And it says, uh, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by, by your faith. It goes on to say, and they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. When the Jews come to faith, they are brought in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from, from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted in, contrary to the matter, uh, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall these who are natural branches also be grafted into the olive tree, their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and thus all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. You see, God is not through with the Jews. And I can report to you that even in our day, there is a great movement among the nation of Israel. There are what we call messianic or completed Jews. These are Jewish people who become believers in Hamashiach, the Messiah. It's happening in Israel. 
There are native-born Israelis who have come to faith that are leading many in their nation to Christ. We see it happening here in the United States, which has an enormous Jewish population. It's happening around the world. God is not done. But what he is allowing is those of us who are Gentiles to be grafted in, to receive the, the message of salvation and, and God's great grace and to be invited to this gracious supper. Now, as those who have been saved, we are called on to share the good news of the gospel. Here you see the servants were told to go out and compel those they found to come to the feast. And friends, as those of us who have become believers, we become servants. And we are called on to go out and compel others to come in. Now, this word compel doesn't mean to force them. This isn't about grabbing somebody and saying, look, as you're shaking them, shake or bake, turn or burn. If you don't get in the kingdom, you're going to hell. That's not how we do it. The idea of compelling somebody here, the word literally means insistent hospitality. Insistent hospitality. Now, what does that mean? Have you ever said to somebody, um, we'd love to have you over for dinner? And, and what do they do? Oh, no, no, no. You know, I, that's, that's so nice of you. But I know, I, I know you're, just, you're, you're just being nice. No, really, we'd, we'd love for you to come for dinner. Look, I, you don't have any time alone. This is, you know, you need to spend it with your family. Um, I, I really can't impose. No, really, it is no imposition. We want you to come. I, I, I just couldn't. No, I insist. You need to come to dinner. Really? You, you, you want me to come to dinner? Yeah. How about 6 o'clock? Can you be there at 6? Great, I'd love to come. Right? Have you ever done something like that? It's that idea of constantly giving the invitation, that insistent hospitality that will break down the barriers and that will encourage somebody to come. It's the picture of what Jesus wants us doing. We're told in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us. We beg you, it says, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. It is that idea of understanding the condition of those who are lost and urgently inviting them. Are you inviting others to come to Christ? There are people who need to know the Lord that you personally know. Do you realize that? And what some of them are waiting for is to see insistent hospitality. To see that we really want them to know the Lord. That we really want them to come to church with us. Or are you afraid, well, if I bring my, my friend from work, you know, he's kind of rough around the edges and he's going to cuss or embarrass me or people are going to go, who's that? Great. Bring him in here. He can sit among all of us who are sinners as well. We just have put on a, a nice veneer, right? We're kind of like a velvet ghetto. We have all the problems inside, but we have this nice, soft exterior. <laughs> and so what God says is there is room for the sinners. Those who were poor, those who were lame, those who were outcasts. These were seen as the sinners of society. And you know, society's still like that today, isn't it? The streets and alleys are filled with who? Prostitutes, thieves, homeless people. Those that on the outside look really wretched. And yet they're just like you and me. They have a heart that needs to know the Lord. And we're called on to share God's great love with them. And when they say, you know, I've made such a mess of my life. God doesn't want anything to do with me. 
You can show them Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And you can say to the person, God loves you. And he loved you enough to die for you. And we'd love to have you at our service. We'd love to have you at our small group. I'd love for you to come over to my house for dinner. And we begin to share the good news as we compel them, as we show that insistent hospitality. And we tell them about the love of God and what he was willing to do to die to save us. When I meet these people who tell me, you know, God doesn't want anything to do with me. Roger, I am a wretched sinner. I say, you know, the good news is you are halfway there. And they go, what do you mean? And I say, you at least realize you're lost. You see, there are some people that don't realize they're lost, and you have to get them lost before you can get them found, right? See, the problem with the religious leaders here is they didn't realize they were lost. They said, hey, we're in the kingdom. Look at us. We're religious leaders. And Jesus says, you guys aren't in. Because you have your rules, you have your ritual, you're religious. But you have no relationship with me. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know what this word sin means. I've shared before that if you take an archery target and and you shoot 100 arrows at it and 99 hit the bullseye, but just one hits outside of the center ring, what happens? The archery judge walks up and he writes on your target, you sinned. The word literally means to miss the mark, to be short of perfection. 99 in the bullseye isn't good enough. And if you've ever lied, stolen, cheated, done anything wrong, you are a sinner. That's bad news. Because Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Wages are what we earn. So many of us try to earn our way to God by being good enough, going to church and putting money in the plate and doing all these things. And God says those are great things to do as one who knows me and loves me and is responding to me, but those are things that will not get you into a relationship with me. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift because he came and he paid the penalty of death for us and he offers it to us. He extends the invitation to everybody and he says, Come to the banquet. Come to to me, come and you will be welcomed at the banquet table in heaven. When the kingdom of God is initiated in, you will be sitting there at the table because you received me as your Messiah. Now the payment that Jesus made on the cross is only good for those who receive his gift of grace. If you've never accepted Jesus to be your savior, then verse 24 describes you Jesus says, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. If you don't receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've had the invitation, but you will not be welcomed home because you did not take the step of faith. During the days when Andrew Jackson was president, there was a postal clerk by the name of George Wilson. George Wilson worked for the post office. He knew there would be a federal payroll on a train. And he set up to rob this train. And as he was doing so, uh, he accidentally shot and killed a man on the train. George Wilson was arrested for his crime. He was tried and he was found guilty. 
and he was sentenced to death. He was also to be hanged. Now, during that days in the U.S., there was this movement against the death penalty, and his petition was started to save George Wilson's life. He happened to have had a perfectly clean record up until this, this uh, robbery and murder. And they said it was just an accident. It was just a fluke. You need to pardon this man. It was a terrible mistake. And as the pressure built, President Jackson finally relented, and he granted a presidential pardon. Now, amazingly, Wilson refused the pardon. Now, this had never happened before, so it went before the U.S. Supreme Court, and they said, what do we do? A presidential pardon frees the person, but he's refusing to accept it. The courts thought about it, and Chief Justice John Marshall, after a debate and a decision was made, handed down the court's decision. And this is what he wrote into the court record. A pardon is an act of grace proceeding from the power entrusted with the execution of the laws, which exempts the individual on whom it is bestowed from the punishment that the law inflicts for the crime he has committed. However, George Wilson has refused to accept the pardon. We cannot conceive why he would do so, but he has. Therefore, George Wilson must die. And as punishment for his crime, he was hanged. Friends, God offers a pardon to everyone. But only those who accept the pardon will receive forgiveness from the penalty of death. Those who refuse the pardon will have to pay the penalty of death. It is not just what the U.S. Supreme Court says. It is what the law of God says. The granting of a pardon ha does nothing if it is not accepted. And the same is true of the invitation that God gives to you this morning. Jesus Christ says there's room at the table for you. The death of Jesus was sufficient for all, but it is only efficacious to those who believe. He died to pay the penalty of sin, but it will only be imparted to those who receive him as their Savior. The question this morning is, have you received Jesus Christ to be your Savior? You are a sinner. That is already decided. We are all sinners, me included. The question is, have you received God's great gift of grace? In Romans 10, 9, we're told, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 10 says, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. If you've never accepted God's great gift to you, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do so now. I'm going to ask you just to bow your heads. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. I just want you to, to think for a moment in your heart if you've ever accepted God's great gift to you. And if you haven't, then what you need to do now is to say to God, I believe you are who you said you are. Jesus, you are God. You are the promised Messiah. And I know that you came to take my place. You came to pay the penalty of death that I owed. And today, Jesus, I'm turning from my sin and I'm turning to you to be my Savior. If you'd like to do that, then pray this prayer with me now. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I know that I've done some things wrong in my life. And because of that, I'm deserving of the penalty of death. I thank you, Jesus, that you loved me so much that you came and you took my place.
that you went to the cross to pay that penalty of death that I owed. I believe, Jesus, that you rose from the dead, showing that you indeed conquered sin and death. And I know, Jesus, you invite me to be with you in heaven, to be a part of the kingdom of God, to sit at that great supper that you've prepared for all eternity. And today, Jesus, I want to take my place at the table. I want to become a part of the family of God. I'm turning from my sins and to you, Jesus, to be my Savior. Thank you for that great gift of new life. I pray this in the name of my precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, as you pray that prayer, I'm going to be at the front. There will be prayer leaders here. We would love to talk to you to make sure you understand that step of faith you just took. We want to give you a Bible. We want to help you take the next steps to grow in your walk with Jesus. And for the rest of us who have already accepted that great invitation, what God calls on us to do today is to go out of here and into the streets and to compel others to come and accept God's great gift of grace. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.